You know, last week I, I came across a story that I thought was kind of interesting because uh, it portrayed Christians in a positive light. But according to the Athens Review, a, a small Texas newspaper, an atheist named Patrick Green, who had threatened to sue a Texas county over the display of a nativity scene, said that he was completely blown away by some Christians from that very same county who provided him with financial assistance for a medical condition. And Green said this, he said, my, my wife and I had never had a Christian do anything nice for us. In fact, just the opposite. And the story pointed out that Green, you see, was one of those guys who's always bringing lawsuits against nativity scenes in public places. You know the type. He's one of those guys that's always kind of involved in the Christmas wars that are fought every Christmas season. But because of a, an eye problem, a detached retina that threatened his eyesight, and the fact that he couldn't pay for his medical treatment, Green uh, decided to drop his lawsuit. And evidently, he always kind of represents himself in these lawsuits. And he said, how can I do that if I can't see? But when some Christians in a church there heard about his condition, they got together and they collected some money and not only paid for his surgery, but they also helped Green and his wife with their rent and bought them some groceries when they found out about their need. And in response, Green said this, he said, I thought that I was in the twilight zone. These people are acting like what the Bible says a real Christian does. They love people. They love people. Now, I don't know if this man became a Christian or not, but it's obvious that these Christians had an effect on his life as, in some sense, they saw them loving their enemy. In fact, the Bible says that the only thing that counts really is faith working itself out through love. But the Bible also says that there's a faith that doesn't love. There's a kind of faith that doesn't produce good works or good deeds. And that kind of faith, the Bible warns us, doesn't save. Now that I've scared everyone here, including myself, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We've been working our, our way through the book of James, and one of the things that we've seen so far is James is a very practical book. James, in other words, shows us, tells us how we ought to live if we really believe the gospel. And one of the things he was troubled by almost 2,000 years ago was an attitude that sees faith as merely a verbal profession. See, it was just as likely then as it is today for church attenders to kind of slide along with a bogus faith that makes no difference in their lives. See, many people treated the grace of God uh, uh, like they do today, a little bit like fire insurance. And so, you know, you don't want to go to hell and have God's wrath poured out on you. And so you believe in Jesus, you agree to that mentally, you, you mentally agree to some facts, but that's it. And so James, in our passage, goes to 
great lengths to warn us and to help us to distinguish between a saving faith and a false faith. A faith that produces good works versus a faith that doesn't work. Look with me what James says here beginning in verse 14. He writes this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? So suppose a a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, well, go, I, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. We skip down to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Not by faith alone. Now, I think that James gives us some signs or tests in this passage for us to see whether or not our faith is genuine and living as opposed to a dead kind of faith. He he gives us some clues so that we can know, so that we can tell whether or not we have a relationship with God. But before we look at those, let's first look at how we're made right with God in in the first place. And I want to be very clear here because this very passage here in James has been misinterpreted by many on how a person is saved. And so the question is, is true religion, as we've been talking about, is Christianity defined as we do good works and then God accepts us on the basis of those good works, or does God accept us by grace through faith in Christ alone? And the summary of James's argument in this passage is found right here, verse 24. He says, you see that a person is justified, made right, by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, this is just another place in the Bible where the Bible contradicts itself, Right? I mean, after all, doesn't Paul say very clearly all throughout the book of Romans and in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and not by our works so that no one can boast? And here, James seems to be telling us very clearly that we're saved by our works. Isn't he contradicting Paul? Well, if he is, and some have thought that, In fact, Martin Luther thought that the the book of James shouldn't even be in the Bible. Then I agree. If that's true, then we can't trust that this is God's Word. We're wasting our time here. What are we doing here? 
you know, if you've, you've been serving here in the church, you've been helping out on the parking team and helping the cars and, you know, every now and then people are flashing you the number one sign because they're mad at you, you know, you, you've been doing that for nothing. That never happens, but, but you got to see, I don't think that James is contradicting Paul. See, he knew all about Paul's teaching. In fact, they were in complete agreement. And so the question is, is why does he write this? Well, I think that he's being, he's very purposefully trying to sound outrageous. He's very purposefully trying to be a pain in the back. Fooled you, didn't I? You thought I was going somewhere else. But he's, he's being purposed to be a pain because he wants to get our attention. See, the key to understanding this is how the two authors use the word justify. Clearly, Paul said that we're made right with God or justified through faith in Christ and not by our works. But James uses that word in a demonstrative sense. James says our works prove or demonstrate that we've been made right with God. There's a difference. See, Paul's teaching about faith and works focused on the time before conversion, and James's focus is after. And he uses Abraham, we didn't read that, but he uses Abraham and, his, and Rahab as examples in that they demonstrated that they had a relationship with God by what they did. Faith always leads to action. If you think about it, in Hebrews, you know, the kind of the hall of fame of faith, they were doers. Think about it. Noah constructed an ark. Abraham left his home. Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Rahab hid the spies. Faith always leads to good deeds. That's James's point. See, he isn't contradicting Paul at all. He's arguing against people who say that a mere profession of faith is enough by declaring that a profession must show forth in concrete changes in our lives. True faith always produces fruit. You know, Melanchthon, uh, who was a friend of Luther, I think put James and Paul together. When he summed it up, he said this, We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. And that's why ultimately at the end, someday when we stand before God, we'll be judged, the Bible says, not by our profession, not by whether or not we accepted Christ or not, not by whether or not we walked an aisle in, in a church one day, although there's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, that might have been the time when you first became a Christian, but, but we'll be judged by the works that we do. Have you ever noticed that? For example, in Matthew 25, Jesus says he will judge and separate the sheep from the goats. How? By our works. We're going to be judged by our works. 
And John Piper has kind of helped me to understand this. I read this years ago because I was always confused about it. But he says, our works that we do in this life will be put on display in God's courtroom for all to see. And they will be witnesses. That They will testify on our behalf that our faith is genuine. That our faith is real. See, true faith always leads to good works. That's James's first point here. We're not saved by our good works, but our good works give evidence that we are saved. And so the question is, how do we know that we have a living faith? How do we know that we're right with God. What are some very tangible signs that we can point to in our lives to see that our faith is real? Well, well, James, before we, James tells us, he gives us a clear example here, I think, of a faith that doesn't save. And he does this because he doesn't want us to miss this. He says, look at demons. In, In verse 19, he says this, you believe that there is one God. Now, you've got to know that a good Jewish person back then would have grown up learning the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Every Jewish child would grow up in a home learning that verse. Well, James says, good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, see, James says there's a kind of faith that can be merely intellectual. It can sign off on some facts and can even affect our emotions. We can have an emotional experience, but it doesn't save. He, He says, do you have just the faith of a demon? You know, demons at least have If you think about it, a few things going for them. Demons, if you remember, have been in the throne room of heaven, right? Of course, they got kicked out. But they've seen who's there. They believe in God. They believe in the existence of heaven and hell. They believe that only Christ can save. They know that not all religions lead to God. Now, they fill people with lies. They, they, they get people to believe that that's, that's true or not true. But you see, sometimes they have better theology than we do. But the point is, is that merely an intellectual consent to some theology, to some facts, isn't enough to save. And not only that, it says that demon, demons shudder. In other words, they're emotionally affected by the reality of God. They fear God. They know His power. They know what He can do. And therefore, they order their lives accordingly. If you think about it, many people don't even do that. Many people don't shudder. They don't fear that because we're sinners, we deserve God's justice. You know, a dying man was asked one time if he had made peace with God, and he replied, well, I didn't even know that we had quarreled. But God has a quarrel with us. 
because of our sin. Demons can't be saved by Christ because of who they are, because of the nature of their beings. But at the very least, they have a proper fear of God. And James says we can have both an intellectual belief and have our emotions affected and still just be on the same plane as a demon. Now, he isn't saying that those things aren't important. No, no, don't make that mistake. Genuine faith always involves both the mind and the heart. But it also involves the will. Faith. True faith must involve the will. It must result in action. It must make a difference in our lives. That's what I want you to see. Faith always leads to obedience. And James is saying, if that's not true of us, then maybe we haven't met his half-brother Jesus. Because if you meet Jesus, he'll change your life. See, there's a difference when it comes to belief between what I think I believe and what I actually believe. This happens in our lives all the time. For example, if you were to ask me, I would tell you that I believe that marriage ought to be an equal partnership where we serve one another. Okay, if you came to me for premarital counseling, that I would tell you that. You'd walk out saying, you know, Shea believes that. I believe the husband and the wife should share equal division of labor around the house. But in reality, you see where I'm going with this, I often find myself doing way more of my fair share... <laughs> of serving around the house, and I rob Lynn and the kids of that great opportunity to serve. (laughs) My daughter heard me say that, and she said, Dad, you're a big fat liar. Are you kidding me? (laughs) The kids know you best, right? They know if you really believe what you say, you believe. But you see what I'm doing here. You, you, You get my point. I believe if I touch fire, I'll get burned, and so I try to make it a habit not to touch fire. I live that conviction out. I believe that coffee gets me going in the morning, and so I drink lots of coffee. See, my core convictions are demonstrated by my behavior. And so we, in other words, never violate our mental maps. We never violate our mental maps what we believe about this world. Or at least we rarely do. And when James says that faith without works is dead, he's not saying, I want to be very clear here, he's not saying that we need to add a certain level of behavioral compliance in order to be saved. No, he's saying if we claim to believe something, but our actions speak otherwise, then we maybe don't really believe what we say we believe. Our actions are often more reliable indicators than our words. Now, 
I know that's tough stuff. <laughs> I'm convicted by that. And i got to be honest with you, this week I was a little bit tempted to just, you, you know, kind of gloss this over, kind of smooth it over for you. But I, I think we really do need to hear what James is saying to us. I, I get it. That's tough stuff. But some of us, I think what we need to do is we just need to pray, God, help me in my unbelief. Help me to believe. Help me to see who you rightly are so I would live out of that knowledge. God, give me eyes to see who you really are. And so the question is, is what are some of those works that we should be doing? What are some of those good deeds? And I think James here uses that term in a general sense. It could be lots of things, but he mentions a few things, a few key things that should be evident in our lives. First of all, back in chapter 1, verse 27, if you remember, he says, true faith, saving faith, is concerned about keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. See, as Christians, we're dead to sin. It's no longer our master. And therefore, we know that we've crossed over from death to life if we're concerned about our personal purity. Our sexual purity, a clean thought life, financial integrity. We should watch our tongues. I think Keith's going to talk about that next week. Now, don't understand, misunderstand. That doesn't mean perfection. But in our lives, there should be a growing love of God and hatred of sin. Now, it's true that this side of heaven, there will always be kind of a little bit of a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live. Let me repeat that. This side of heaven, if you're a believer, there will always be a little bit of a disconnect between what you say you believe and how you live. But at the very least, I think our experience should be like that of Paul in Romans chapter 7. Remember Paul, he said, I, I know what's right, and I want to do what's right. But I find myself, I, I, I keep doing what I don't want to do. But I don't want to do that. Well, I think that Paul's experience should be our experience. Do you have a heart that loves God? Do you have a heart that hates sin? where you want to do what's right. It's a good test. It's a good sign. But secondly, and maybe this is, I think, the most important thing that James wants us to see, the main way that we know that our hearts have been changed by the gospel is do we care for people in the body of Christ and those outside of it? The poor, the hurting, the marginalized. He says this in, in verse 15. Look with me. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. <clears throat> and if one of you says to him, go, I, I wish you well. <clears throat> Keep warm and well fed. In other words, what you're doing there is you're, you're, you're pronouncing a benediction over the person's life like we do at the end of our services. And so we're saying, God bless you. Oh, we'll be praying for you. Hope, hope you find someone that will 
feed you. If we do that, he says, if, we, if it's a faith that does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? Faith by itself, <clears throat> if not accompanied by action, is dead. See, he's saying if we come across poor people and broken people and hurting people and, and people who are very different than us, you know, Dave talked about that last week, and we respond in scorn where we're kind of looking down upon those people thinking that we're better, or we respond in indifference, it may be a sign that we don't have a living faith. Now, we have to be very careful here, okay? Some qualifiers. I want you to see the principle that should be operating in our lives. The Bible says those who won't work, not can't work, but those who won't work shouldn't eat. And not all of us are called to adopt orphans. There are many other ways that we can care for people. Not, not all of us are called to sponsor a, a, a child through Compassion International like we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. And I know some of you are out there thinking, well, I, did, I didn't sign up last week. I'm not a real Christian. I'm going to hell. No, listen, stop. Stop yourself, okay? I want you to listen to me. I want you to see the principle. James does say in chapter 2, verse 13, that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But people who know that they've received God's mercy, those who get that, will be merciful towards others as a general way of life. If you know that you deserve nothing and God saved you, you'll be gracious towards those who have very little. And I guarantee you God will bring opportunities your way. Now, you can't give to everything. And you can't be involved in every ministry. But Tim Keller says this. He says, A life poured out in deeds of service to the poor is an inevitable sign of real, true, justifying gospel faith. Grace makes you just. Grace makes us merciful. Grace, if we get it, helps us to forgive when we've been wronged by others. And I could go on and on and on and on. Grace does a lot of things in our lives. And so the question is, do we care for others? Are we generous with our time and our resources? God calls us corporately as a church and individually <clears throat> to do that. But one problem is, is sometimes we think, of our time and our possessions as solely ours. But you see, God has always blessed His people abundantly so that they could be a blessing to others. We're just stewards of God's money. 
In fact, Proverbs 19.17 says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will reward him for what He's done. Okay, I get it. Let's be honest. Serving takes time. Giving costs us. But do we really believe? Do we really believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive? I want to believe that. I need to ask God to give me a heart that really believes that truth. But I think another problem is is sometimes we want to do something, but we don't know how to go about caring for others unless we're involved in a small group. And, and, And so one of the things that we have today in the foyer are just very specific volunteer opportunities, ministries, that you might want to check out. And Charles, in a moment, during the announcements, is going to tell you about ways that you can be involved. But here's the point. Those who know that they've been objects of God's mercy will be merciful towards other people. This morning, I want to close with a story Because I think it fits very well with what James is saying to us in our passage here. You know, most of us are aware of the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, where a gunman took the lives of 20 children and six teachers. And we'll never forget that day. I I know I won't because I I have a six-year-old, age of some of those kids killed. And I can't imagine the heartbreak then and still in that community that lost so much. But now, six months later, the media has left for the most part. And those who went there to initially help have gone home and a national gun debate rages on in Washington, D.C. But there are people there in that community who are left to pick up the broken pieces of their lives. And yet, according to an article that was recently in Christianity Today, there are Christians there who are making a difference. God is showing His presence to people there through His church. Evidently, Walnut Hill Community Church has stayed involved in a way with the families who lost children. And it's even made skeptics question and wonder. Besides deploying a team of pastors and counselors to the families who lost children, it has set up a fund to provide long-term care to those who have been most affected by the shooting. And not only that, other churches have bought dogs, these dogs, for grieving families. And evidently, these dogs, these golden Retrievers, this is really cool, they provide a a comforting presence to people who are hurting. Someone said they're, they're a little bit like furry counselors. I like that. And I read that Lutheran services are also sending these same kind of dogs to people who have been affected by the bombing this past week in Boston. 
But the pastor at Walnut Hill Community Church, he said this. He said, he said, we're not, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We're committed for the long haul. And the acts of kindness aren't going unnoticed. In fact, someone commented on the church's website, I'm an agnostic, but reading about the work that you're doing there in Newtown, it makes me doubt my own beliefs and why I don't believe. See, I think, I think we need to realize the impact that we as a church can have on people here in our own community when they see us living out our faith, when they see us living out what we <clears throat> say that we believe. Francis of Assisi put it this way. He said this, preach the gospel at all times, but when necessary, use words. I like that. Or if James could tell us. He would, he would maybe say it this way. We're saved by a faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And so a very important question then is, do you have a living faith? Do you have a living faith? If you're not sure, or if you know the answer is no, then put your hope in Christ. Remember, in order to have a relationship with God, faith doesn't do. It doesn't look to our record, our sin, our works. No, it rests, it trusts, it simply receives what God has done for us in Christ. Would you do that? Put your hope in Him. But the more we see His beauty as Christians, the more we realize who He is and all that He's done for us, He's adopted us as children of the King. We're heirs of the throne. The more we get that, the more we'll want to live for Him in this world. And I think one of the places where we see God's beauty and His goodness the best is the cross. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, because we need to be reminded of the truths that are represented here. We need to see again His beauty. And we need to let that beauty change our lives. On the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took some bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took some wine and he poured it out into a cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for you. Take and drink. And today, if you're believing the gospel, as we've been talking about this morning, you're looking to Christ's record and not yours. It's His good works that matter, right? 
If you're believing the gospel and repenting of your sin, then Jesus invites you to come and to take part in this meal. Okay, you don't have to be a member of this church. If, you, if you're looking to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, then come and eat. As usual, there will be many stools right down here in front, five aisles, and actually stools in the back as well. And whenever you're ready, you can just simply come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the grape juice that will be in front of us in the goblet on the stool, or you can dip it into the wine that will be in the goblet that we're holding in our hand. When you come, you don't need to say anything, but we'll say a blessing, a word of encouragement to you to help you to continue to believe the promises of the gospel. It'd be a huge mistake, too, if we didn't give to the Benevolent Fund this morning as well. And so, as usual, there's some baskets right up here on stage, and all the money that's given during communion will go to help people with their physical needs here in our church as well as in our community. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we're reminded again that we're great sinners, but we have even a greater Savior. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By your grace, give us hearts that love you and hate sin. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be not just hearers of your word, but doers. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.